Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Mark 15, starting with verse 42. So the last time we talked about the crucifixion and four people came forward to receive the Lord. Not surprising when you talk about the depths that God went through, the love that he has for us, how he proved it, how he showed it. How could anybody not want to give their heart to the Lord when we know that God did all the heavy lifting? You know, again, it's, this, it's like being married to the perfect person. He cares for us. He loves us. He's got our best interest at heart. He forgives us. When we blow it, he's gracious to us. I mean, this is, you know, really. I mean, some people say, well, what's the catch? Because that's the world we live in. But there is no catch. This is God, you know. Uh, he is perfect. So that's what we covered. And today we're going to look at the resurrection. Because really, what evidence is there that the crucifixion did anything except for Romans torturing people in their capital punishment method? What evidence is there at all that there is any substitutionary death or atonement or whatsoever that Jesus just died on the cross and that was it? Well, Jesus upped the ante. You know, he said, I'm going to rise three days. First of all, nobody takes my life. I give it up willingly. But in addition to that, I'm going, I laid down my life. I'm going to take up my life again. I'm going to come back. So you have the resurrection. Now, before anybody thinks that this was some nice fairy tale with a happy ending. As we actually read it, and if you go through all the Gospels, you'll find that uh, the Lord went through, in his resurrected form, no less, an awful lot of work, (laughs) an awful lot of effort to try to encourage his faithless and fearful and frightened believers that it was really him, to the point where he said to Thomas, and I can picture him taking Thomas's hand, and putting his fingers through the, the prints that the, the nails left at the cross. You know, the hole in the side from the, the spear of the Roman soldier. And he's basically saying to Thomas, look, it's me. And Thomas is, is blown away and he, he worships him. Right? So, so this is what's going on. Now, why is the resurrection again so important? Well, it's important because it's, you know, who wants to follow a, a dead savior? And I'm just going to be real cut to the chase, be real frank. You know, there's millions of people going around in the world uh, sitting at tombs once a year making pilgrimages to men and women who have died who have started new religions. I got news for you. I don't have time for a new religion. I don't even have time for religion. I actually left religion because I was, didn't, it was just doing nothing for me. But then I entered into a relationship with the Lord because I was completely convinced by all the research that I did that he actually did rise again. I have time for that. A living relationship with a living God, a living faith, a living interaction. That's what the Lord offers us. Not to go do this, do that, memorize that. That's man's attempt to try to make himself feel good that hopefully when he dies he goes to a better place. That's a real gamble. That's like playing Russian roulette. I mean, seriously, if you're going to follow something, you better do the research on it make sure that it's true. However, Jesus conquered death, and when the Romans were bearing down on the Christians and slaughtering them in a most merciless fashion, the Christians were still popping up. 
as the saying goes, uh, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So let's go through this. In Mark 15, verse 42, it says, Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate, Pontius Pilate, and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he, Jesus, was already dead. Remember, this could have, they could have languished for days on the cross. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. And when he had found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he bought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in the tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph observed where he was laid. So Joseph of Arimathea, he's a council member. He's a religious leader. He's part of the Sanhedrin. You know, if you do your historical research. He boldly asks for the body of Jesus. Pilate marvels that he's dead so soon. Remember we talked about the physiology of the crucifixion, the whippings, the fact that Jesus had nothing to confess, so they most likely whipped him harder, and the blood loss, and the hypovolemic shock, and the trauma, and the, the, um, the overload of the central nervous system from all the pain that he experienced. But most importantly, Jesus gave up his spirit. He died for our sins. There was no reason for God's Son to hang on the cross. He died probably before everybody else. He gave up the Spirit. He sacrificed himself for our sins, and there was no reason for him to languish on the cross anymore. So Pilate marveled, you know, knowing the procedure, knowing that it takes a while. Uh, the idea was that you wanted the bodies to come down from the cross so the soldiers would break the legs so that you couldn't push yourself up to get a breath of air if you're on that cross. So eventually your legs are broken, and you just suffocate, and the person dies in a quicker fashion. However, when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. Well, his body was there, but his spirit went to be back with the Father. Now, in John 19, we also find Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee. We find Nicodemus coming to Jesus secretly in John chapter 3. He was Joseph of Arimathea's partner in crime, so to speak. I say that facetiously. He goes with you know, the two of them are together, Joseph and, and Nick. I'll call them Joe and Nick for short, if that's okay with you, to take down the body. They want to prepare it. They want to wrap it with um, grave clothes and, and spices. And remember, they didn't have embalming practices like we have today. Put them in the tomb. You know, I wonder if, if Joe and Nick um, thought that this was the least that they could do. They probably, you know, they in a sense bucked their peers because they supported Jesus, and most of their peers did not. However, they might have thought, well, gee, this is the least we could do. We really believe he is who he is. We need to show respect for the body. Maybe they didn't think much of their contribution. Maybe they didn't know that their contribution would make it into the Gospels. You read the Gospels, take it all together, you get a picture of what they did. How many of you think that your sacrifice is too small? How many of you think that you don't have much to offer the Lord? Well, I'm glad you raised your hand because I want to encourage you. Don't shortchange yourself. Don't let yourself be hindered from serving the Lord because no sacrifice is too small. I wonder if these two men realized that by acting swiftly, that they prevented the body. And this is, again, they didn't have human rights back then. They didn't have rules. and They just did what they felt was effective, the Roman government. 
right, to keep order. The Pax Romana, so to speak, was enforced by force. However, Jesus kept order through love, completely different. Even Napoleon marveled about that, how Jesus could command so many millions of people to worship him and to give their lives out of love, not force or fear. Jesus did it a different way, but no man has been able to duplicate that. Remember, he's the Son of God. However, because they acted so swiftly, Jesus' body, along with the other crucifixion victims, wasn't going to be thrown into a refuse pile with the birds pecking at it and the rotting and the maggots and all that. It's a horrific way. Um, it just inhuman, no respect for the body. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah 53, 9, now this is written some seven centuries before this whole crucifixion, right? Isaiah 53, 9, it says, And they made his grave, the Lord's grave, with the wicked. Remember, the, uh, he was crucified between two robbers, insurrectionists, but with the rich at his death. Most people couldn't afford a, uh, a tomb hewn out of the rock. That would have been very expensive and costly because he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Isn't that amazing how the Bible, yeah, I know, you're shaking your head, how, how the Bible predicts with such accuracy things that will happen before they happen. That's called prophecy if you're new to this. And it's an amazing thing. And that's where God proves he is who he is. It's prophecy, fulfilled prophecy. I can tell you this, though. Let me encourage you. <clears throat> we have the most to offer God when we are humble. I laugh sometimes. People say, oh, Pastor Joe, you don't, you don't know. You don't know what I came from. You don't know that when I raised my hand to be a pastor, I knew I was unqualified. Looking back, I absolutely knew I was unqualified. And the Lord worked with me. I had no idea what I was doing. I just thought I was going to teach the Bible. I didn't know all the stuff that came with being a pastor. So I just want to encourage you. Don't think you're sacrificed. I don't know. I don't know what to do. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Just offer yourself. God wants a willing vessel. And you're in the perfect place to serve Him. Now would be a good time to plug the ministry application. No, just, okay. <laughs> Let's move on. If we can go to Matthew 27, and verse 62, and I love doing this, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all fill in these blanks, and they paint this perfect picture of what happened at the time. Matthew 27, 62. It says, On the next day which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive, meaning Jesus, how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone, and setting the guard. Now, you might say, why would Pontius Pilate listen to these guys? Because Rome and the Jewish leadership had a vested interest in presenting the body. Look, he's dead. Look, he didn't rise from the dead. So everybody in the world got together to try to do the best that they could to keep the body from being seen in an alive form, of course, a resurrected form. Look, here's the body. Look, here's the bones. However, it didn't work. A guard is set at the tomb. At the least, it would have been four soldiers. And again, today, that's one of the arguments that people still use. It's kind of funny because they got it from the Bible. 
here's the ironic thing. The, those who are the enemies of Christ find something in Scripture that the Bible says that's a historical fact, and they ran with it. Well, that's kind of lame because the Scripture puts it forth out there. All right? Not for nothing, but the disciples were... Okay, forgive me for this. They were, if you read this, this portion in this time frame, they were kind of being cowards. So they're going to take Roman soldiers and with the seal of wax and move the stone, and all of a sudden become, they become commandos. Jesus can't even convince them that he's alive, and they're going to steal the body. So that's really a lame argument. Here's another thing. You've got to use logic. And this is where apologetics comes in. You know, we believe what we believe, but we also back it up with common sense, you know, with, with evidence. See, the, the problem is that when the Romans started killing Christians, and they weren't nice about it, it wasn't lethal injection or a way that made somebody feel peaceful when they were to die, they crucified Christians, they tied them up, dipped them in tar, and set them on fire while they were alive. They took their children and put sheepskin over them and sent them into the arenas and let the wild dogs tear their children apart. Now, all the Christians had to do was say, I give, I submit, I'll bow down and worship Caesar. Because the Roman, you know, those you're supposed to do, worship the Caesars as they were a god. But they, they were dying, and more of them started coming to faith. That doesn't make any sense. Either, there was a craze going around, and everybody was completely stupefied, or God was a part of this. God was in this. And we read history, secular history, it backs up everything that I'm saying. You know, at some point, somebody would say, Uncle, I give. It was all a joke. I'm sorry, it was a bad prank. Please, let us go. Nobody did that. Not one person that I read, even in secular history. See, today, most people won't even die for the truth. Who would die for a lie? I hate to say it, even in Western Christianity, listen, I saw a, a documentary on what's going on in Sudan and uh, the Christians just being slaughtered. Just, it's just still going on. It's a horrible thing. Why don't they just say, well, we'll convert. Don't shoot us. Because they know the living Savior. Here in the West, we're afraid to be made fun of. That's really sad when you put that in perspective. I watched, that, watched the movie last night, The Good Lie. I was in tears, and I did some research on it, and you know, I knew about Sudan, but it, the movie really kind of brought out the, these people. It's amazing what they go through. And then the kids over in Kurdistan and fleeing to the mountains and you know, fleeing ISIS and just because they want to hold on to their faith because that's all they have. All they have is their faith. Something to consider. Verse 16, going back to Mark. It says, Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? Think about their mindset. Remember I said that the women were very brave last Sunday? They were. However, they still lacked faith. Why? Because they're bringing spices to anoint a dead body not expecting a risen Savior. Think about that. You don't anoint with spices a, a live person. You don't embalm or a process of embalming a live person. They were going expecting to see his body. And their biggest dilemma was what? Who's going to roll the stone away for us? We can't do it. We don't have the strength. Now, Matthew 28, I'm not going to go back to that, but I'll just tell you, it fills in some more. An angel comes removes the stone, terrifies the guards. 
the religious leaders catch up with the guards or they catch up with them and they bribe them to say, listen, just here's some money, just propagate the story that the disciples stole the body. And, and I'm paraphrasing, if Pilate is, is going to give you a hard time, we'll try to run some interference for you. That was the best deal they were going to get because they left their post because the angel terrified them. Remember in the Old Testament, 185,000 people were slain by one angel. Right? So think about the power of, of God's agents. Now, how would Mark and Peter know all this? Remember, Peter gave Mark a lot of information for Mark's gospel. Well, remember in John 18, it says that John was known, the disciple John was known to the high priest. So in some instances, the Holy Spirit fills it in for them in detail. In other instances, stuff gets out. We think about the White House today, you know, it's so secure and it's the president and secret service and, and every week you read something new in the news, another secret that gets out. How does it get out? Because people talk, right? How would they know this? Because it got around. That's how we know. Stuff leaks all the time. Verse 4. It says, but when they looked up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man, which they perceived as a young man, clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him as he said to you. And they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So from a human perspective, they see this man in a white raiment, and um, it's an angel. And they, they believe it's a young man. Uh, probably God's angels had never seen one personally, but they probably look very pure, very youthful. They're probably not haggard looking. God probably has a really good health plan, and they, they, stay, they stay very pure-looking. And So this is there, remember, I, I always like to interject the, the human animal, the human part to it, and what would we do? <laughs> Who's that? What's he doing in there? Well, he, man, his clothes are pretty clean. <laughs> I've never seen anything so white. So, so, you know, an angel pretty much instructs them what to do next. In verse 7, the disciples are instructed, okay, you know, instruct the disciples, be encouraged, and Peter. Now, Peter is mentioned separate. So why was Peter mentioned separate? Well, the other disciples denied the Lord. They, they, they were afraid. When Jesus was arrested, they ran. They took off. However, Peter kind of was hanging out between two worlds. He was far from Jesus, so he didn't get caught, but he wasn't close to him because he was scared. And then when it came out, well, we, we recognize your speech, you know, he's warming himself by the fire, it probably lit up his face. Well, you look familiar, you were with them too. Peter three times vociferously, aggressively denies that he knows Jesus. Calls, swears and curses down on him, I do not know the man. Maybe Peter needed a little extra encouragement. Listen, when we sin and we deny the Lord, and we repent, God wants to restore us. I often say God is in the restoration business, and as human beings, we need re restoration. You know, and if we think that we're the best Christian, or we, we've made it, or we've arrived, and we're at the pinnacle, we need more restoration, because pride is occluding 
the truth of what we really look like. If you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, like Peter, that you're the worst excuse for a Christian that's ever lived, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. If you truly want a change of heart, if you truly want to change, and repentance is really a scary word that's been preached, but it really means to change and, and start to now move in the Lord's direction. God forgives, and that's been paid for at the cross. It's dead and buried. You can see Peter saying through Mark's gospel, I was ministered to. I got a personal invitation to see the Lord. It really encouraged me. And for you this morning, there's also a personal invitation. You know, the Lord wants to do something with you personally. You know, I, I just, I love repentance. And if a pastor is preaching it right, repentance is something to be held on to. It's a good thing. Now, when we look at the totality of Scripture, and I'll just go through this with the four Gospels, I'm just going to give you the order that the Lord appeared to people, right, based on what I see, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So the first person that got to see Jesus, again, going through all the Scriptures, was Mary Magdalene. Second was the other women in the group. Third was the Emmaus Travelers, which I'll get to in Luke's Gospel. Uh, fourth is Peter. Now, some have Peter and Emmaus Travelers reversed but I, I think this is the order. It was really close. Five, the, the, fifth, uh, the rest of the disciples. Six is the 500 at one time. There was some type of gathering. The Apostle Paul speaks about that in 1 Corinthians 15. And seven, the Apostle Paul speaks about himself as really one of the last ones that the Lord personally appeared to. Okay, continuing in in verse 9. It says, now when he, Jesus, rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. So Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene was a devoted follower of the Lord, and seven demons were cast out of her. Now, if we look at Luke 7, and we look at basically principles, right, principles of the Scripture, to, much, to whom much is forgiven, the same loves much. So seven demons were cast out of this woman. Imagine how they ruined her life. Imagine how uh, dysfunctional her life was. Imagine how much they abused her. Jesus cast those seven demons out, and she's free to be the person that God has always called her to be. So she loved much. She was very loyal. She probably figured, so if, I don't care if I get arrested. I don't care what they do to me. I'm going to take a chance because Jesus was amazing to me. There's another principle that those that don't think they need a lot of forgiveness, that they think they're pretty good, they show little forgiveness and they show little grace. You can see that in the older brother and the prodigal son, remember? He, you know, he almost seems angry with his father. You know, I've always been here for you. You know, he's, he's a, I'm paraphrasing, my, my brother's a degenerate. He left. He squandered your money. And now you're taking him back. And now you're throwing a party. You know, I've always been here for you, Dad. I've always served you. You can almost see a grudgingness in, in his attitude. Because you know what? He's always done the right thing. But sometimes those that they realize the depths that the Lord had to go to to save their souls, they're a lot more appreciative. They love much. And this was Mary Magdalene, I believe. Now, things have been uh, attributed to Mary Magdalene that are not in the Scripture. How many of you heard, oh, Mary Magdalene was a prostitute? 
I've heard that. It's not true. It's nowhere in Scripture. It's conjecture, it's surmising, but it's not, it's not there. How many of you heard, I don't know, for some reason, poor Mary Magdalene, uh, they always pick on her for these different things, uh, that, that this, this conspiracy theory that Jesus married Mary Magdalene and had children and you know, didn't really get crucified. All this weird stuff. For some reason, they just keep focusing on her. But let me read verse 11 again. It says, And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did receive it with joy. No, they did not believe. When we take all the Gospels together, the disciples eventually come around. But initially, they're grieving, they're weeping, they're unbelieving when they should have been sitting outside of the tomb as the S-U-N was rising, waiting for the S-O-N to rise because he promised them that he would rise on the third day. That's faith. If anybody really had faith, they would have camped out Saturday night, braved the elements, and been there in the morning waiting for Jesus to rise. That's faith. However, women are coming to prepare a dead body. Men aren't much better. They're having a pity party. And they're together. They're all together weeping and, and complaining and having a pity party. So tell me again this morning, you who walked into this building, tell me again, convince me, please, at the potluck, fill my ear, tell me how and why God can't use you this morning. Where's your argument? If this was the A-team, <laughs> and we sometimes look at them as the A-team, God can't use us? Oh, sure he can. You just have to be willing. You see, they, I don't want to pick on them too much because I'd probably be complaining too. I'd probably be, you know, complaining. Oh, Peter, this is terrible. Really, who, who, you know? But they and we are a work in progress. And that's the beautiful thing. And even when he does use you, people come to me all the time. They get saved. They're like, oh, my, my life is not like perfect. Yeah, that's right, because Satan doesn't want to lose you. And then you step up to serve. And then you get called higher in ministry. And then you come with, to me with more complex problems. That's right. But serve him. He will give you the grace to do it. And what you find is that what you and I did in the flesh, listen, I have a, a, a 40 degree from a good school. I have accomplishments in the world that I did on my own in my flesh. When I became a Christian, I accomplished things through God. And I realized that the things that I relied on in the world, I couldn't rely on anymore. It just wasn't working. Stuff in the church, people problems. I'm like, I can't do this. Lord, I need a little extra measure of grace here because I don't know what to do. And you find that when you're a believer and you really trust in Him and you really trust that the Holy Spirit is working through you, things can happen. It's just an amazing thing. It's so funny. Becoming from a police officer, with a police officer, you run to the scene and you're the first one there and it's chaos. Hurry up, fix it. And you fix it. Then you come into church and there's chaos and you, it's spiritual and don't touch it. Get your hands off of it. You better, do, you better do some praying here. Maybe do something, but you better pray through it because it's got to be God who does the work. Boy, if, if, if I'm not bipolar spiritually in some of these situations, I don't know what is. So, so this is what goes on. And it's, it's an awesome thing to watch because when great things happen as a Christian, it's so great because you get to give God the glory. Amen? Verse 12. It says, After that he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. 
And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Now, I'm not going to go into this, but this is most likely for reference, referring to Luke 24, 13 through 35, where Jesus speaks to two travelers on the road to Emmaus in his resurrected form. Um, one thing I'll point out that I really like is the fact that he ate in front of them in his resurrected body. He can still eat. That's a pretty cool thing. In addition to that, and this is really important, Luke tells us that what Jesus does is he leads these travelers, he reassures them about the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, and how he would die for everyone, and how you know, all these things would happen, and he would have a substitutionary death, and then he'd be resurrected. He does this, he walks them through his death, burial, and resurrection through what? Through the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, all the Old Testament. Pretty neat stuff. So, those you, you have Jewish friends that you love, you know, brush up on the Old Testament a little bit because that really gives some great evidence of all this stuff. The, the New Testament is just a fulfillment, a culmination of things that were espoused in the Old Testament. They go together. The world tries to say, that's the old, this is the new. Even in some denominations, that we don't touch the Old Testament. Why not? That's foundational to what we believe today. It helps us to get a greater understanding about what we believe. 14, afterward he appeared to the leaven as they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. According to the Bible, sometimes the best way to get us out of our funk and our self-whatever is rebuke and exhortation to get off the couch to shake us out of our complacency. Sometimes we need that. It's so sad that um, the commentary of the world and how they look at Christianity, the world tries to sanitize what we believe or what we do, what the Bible says. They, the world tries to say that uh, street preachers and evangelists are, are weird. You know, they're fire and brimstone. That's a good thing. That's necessary. I know a sister in the Lord who, I won't say her name because I didn't ask permission, but she's an awesome servant, great lady, been a Christian for a long time. She goes, I wasn't listening before she was a believer. She goes, it wasn't until my friend said, you're going to hell. <laughs> and she was offended at first, and she said, well, show me where it says that. She says, and I really started to think about spiritual things. I was caught up in my religion, but I really had no relationship with the Lord. So everything has a purpose. You know, sometimes you, you, you have to be a little stern. And, and others will say, where's the love, man? Where's the love in this church? Rebuke is necessary. Did we, when we become Christians, do we become perfect? No. I know I, I don't. Sometimes I get rebuked. Sometimes I need to be shaken out of my complacency. But there's times that we need to be rebuked. There's a, a time for exhortation. And then there's a time for encouragement and ministering to. It all goes together, Right? Because we can be, as human beings, we can be tough nuts to crack. Verse 15, And he said to them, Go into all the world. Now, a lot has happened in between this. I would encourage you to go to uh, Matthew and Luke and John and just read it and try to put all the pieces together. Right? There's a lot going on. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow, they're not primary, they will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. 
they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven, the ascension, and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Amen. So the Lord is commissioning his disciples by extension believers today, but remember, they were primary. They had, let's put this in context, right? If we don't put the scripture in context, we get into false doctrine. I did emphasize something, then I'll talk about why I emphasize it when I get there. These followers were supposed, Jesus had already established the church as far as spiritually, the, the calling out of the world sealing believers with the Holy Spirit. But these men and women, they needed to go out, needed to establish sort of a, the structure. And I say that loosely, because today the structure turns people off. It's too structured, it's too rule-oriented, and it's not spirit-filled. And that's a, pro a lot of problem what people have with church today. Let me just try to give you some filler here. In the minds of the people, they were in an intertestamental or interdispensational period. They were really... But they were in the New Testament, but they were kind of between the old and the new. So the things that we take for granted in the church for the last 2,000 years, oh, we got commentaries, we got Greek manuscripts, it's great today as a Christian. You can find anything. But back then, this was new to them. God was doing a new work here. And I think about the teaching of the wineskins, right? The signs confirmed a lot of the things that the disciples were doing, right? This was God's seal of approval, so let's look at these. Number one, cast out demons. Can a person receive Christ until a demon's gone? No. The Holy Spirit and a demon can't inhabit the same person. So they had to cast out those that were demon-possessed. And Christians today, brothers and sisters, you know, I know the devil doesn't want you to know this, but we have the power in the name of Jesus Christ with the word and prayer. We can cast out a demon, period. Demons don't want to be around us when we're filled with the Spirit. Because remember, it, this isn't this, war, this cosmic war between God and the devil, and they're equal. The devil, is, he's going to be kicked to the curb at some point. I believe it's um, one of the prophets, I think it's Isaiah, who people will look at him and be like, whoa, is this the one who caused us all these problems? We're so terrified of the devil. But God has given us power over the demons, over the fallen angels. Now, there is a teaching that says that there's a devil for everything. There's a demon. If you're greedy, you have a demon. If you have lust, you have a demon. If you're into addictions, you have a demon. I have a problem with that teaching. Number one, if you're a Christian, you don't have a devil. Number two, it takes away our personal responsibility. If I do something wrong, I'd love to blame it on the devil. Oh, Lord, again, this guy. <sighs> but the truth is, when I sin, it's me. <laughs> you know, and I've got to repent can't blame it on somebody else. So let's put this in context. Number two, speaking with tongues. In Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter spoke, I believe, to 3,000. It's a lot of people. But for, the, for that day, that was, that's a big crowd to talk to. Peter didn't have the internet. He didn't have iPhones. He didn't have a translator on hand. So speaking in tongues was very helpful to communicate. And this is amazing. As Peter is preaching... Elamites and Phrygians and, and Greeks and Egyptians and Cyrenians and they're, they're all gathered together because this is like an international feast. And they're saying, I hear Peter speaks Egyptian. No, he speaks Elamite. No, he speaks Babylonian. Because what happens is as the words left Peter's mouth, it, it was a work of the Holy Spirit. 
each language, his, his, what, if he spoke in, in Aramaic or Greek, the Holy Spirit divided his, his words so each person there heard it in their own native tongue. That is a miracle, right? Now, there is a teaching that says we need to speak in tongues in order to be saved. That's not true. It's not scriptural. Even the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14, 12, 13 and 14, do all speak in tongues? Do all have this gift? Do all? And the answer is no. The Holy Spirit distributes them severally as he wishes, not as we wish. Three, handling snakes. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this one. <laughs> In Acts 28, the Apostle Paul, as he was getting wood and stuff for the fire, accidentally disturbed the poisonous snake and it latched onto him and bit him. And everyone watching expected him to die, but he ended up living. It was a miracle. And others believed. Others believed it. How many of you have at least seen clips of the show or the advertisement of the show called Snake Salvation? <laughs> the rest of you are blessed. <laughs> it's a church, and there's a big snake pit, and there's all poisonous snakes, and they, they all pick up the snakes, and they dance around. I mean, there's no scripture reading. There's no, it's all about snakes. Talk about something that's taken out of context. I'm going to make an analogy here. What I saw them doing, and I'll do it for you, don't take any pictures. <laughs> they hold the snakes, they dance, and they go like this, they go. <laughs> and their eyes roll back of their heads. I've seen that before. I've seen that with people that Benny Hinn touches, and they do that thing. I've also seen that in Eastern cults, when people are brainwashed, and they're demonically possessed, and they do that, that thing. It's not of God. It's not of God. And I'm going to tell you this. You might think I'm being mean, but we need to get the weirdness out of Christianity. Because I will tell you that the first time I came to church, a good church, I was a police officer. I was pretty fearless. I pulled into the parking lot. I didn't know anybody. My friend didn't show up, so I drove right back out of the parking lot. Because to me, churches were weird. And this is the reason why people think Christianity is weird. This is not Christianity. This is out of context. We don't go tempting the Lord by trying to get bit by snakes. And here's the other thing, drinking poison. What's the next show? Poison pill salvation? People drink poison and go, I'm waiting. You know? All right, I'm going to leave you one more thing. Here's homework. When you go home, in your search engine, put Benny Hinn in there and then put let the bodies hit the floor. <laughs> You've got to watch this. Back in the day, there was an old mosh pit song. It doesn't have any bad words. It's, it's hysterical, right? And it's called Let the Bodies Hit the Floor. And what they do is they take Benny Hinn, all his concerts where he waves his jacket and he touches people and they fall down and the audience falls down and they choreograph it to Let the Bodies Hit the Floor. It is hysterical. So I'm going to ask you next Sunday if you watched it. Okay, listen, we network with a lot of churches that are very different from us, but there's a line that when you cross that line and you get into stuff that's out of context, it's weird, it has no place in Christianity. Okay, so moving on. I will say this, that I, I knew of a real-life account of a Chinese pastor in the underground church in China 
who, and they do horrible things to these pastors to try to kill, shut down the underground church. I mean, these are Christians that just want Bibles. They want to, and they memorize a page, and then they give it to them. They don't have Bibles like we do. We, I have like 10 of them, 15 of them at home. There's a whole bunch in the library. They are so hungry for the Word. In the church in Pakistan, the church in Iran, the church in China. They forced an underground Chinese pastor. They caught him, the government. And they tortured him. One of the things they did was they force-fed him real live sewage. Shoved it down his throat, forced it, and they thought he was going to die. And he lived, and nothing happened to him. That should have made him, at the least, very sick. That was a miracle. That's a horrible thing that happened to the guy. But you know what? Some of these guards, some of these government officials in these nations see what's going on, and they see that they can't stop these Christians and they believe, and they come to faith. And I've actually, I actually read accounts of communists back in the late uh, the 40s and 50s, communist uh, guards who became saved because they tried to torture these Christian pastors and they wouldn't give up. And they're like, what, why, do you, why don't you just go back to your family? What's wrong with you? And there's where the witnessing starts. So the disciples, they were tortured. All but John, uh, the disciple John, they were all tortured to death. But in, in the interim, they did these incredible miracles that followed the preaching of the good news of salvation. I don't want to take a long time on this, but when it comes to, and this kind of bleeds into the gifts of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. In some hyper-Calvinistic circles, they're cessationalists, which means they don't believe in any of the gifts of the Spirit. In some hyper-Pentecostal cir circles, it's all manifestation, some of the stuff's made up. It's just a big free-for-all on a Sunday morning. That was one of the churches I walked out of, by the way. There was no word. There was no message. I learned nothing when I came out of there. Calvary Chapel's, I think, nicely planted in the middle. We believe that the gifts are available for today. However, we also realize that a lot of the amazing stuff that happened, and it's happening over on the missions field, by the way, in the early church, um, they, these, these gifts had to be assigned to establish the church. And unfortunately, I hate to say this, but I think that in Western Christianity, largely as a culture, we're so into our, and I love technology, we're so biotechnology, living longer, health, all this kind of stuff, that I think sometimes we, we've kind of pushed God out. And Jesus said this as he went through different towns that they just didn't believe, so he left, and he didn't do a lot of miracles. And I think as a culture, we struggle with that. We need to rely more on God and not our 401ks and our technology and our doctors. And those things are all good. But Christ has to be primary. Amen? Okay, as we close, what are we supposed to do now? Well, as we take all four Gospels together, number one, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Two, preach the Gospel, including His death, burial, and resurrection. Three, continue to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Four, be obedient to God's word. And five, to disciple. What does disciple look like? Discipleship. It's training. It's teaching. It's apprenticeship. Some of you are uh, tradesmen, electricians and plumbers and stuff, and, and you, you were taught that trade. It basically is discipleship is a continuation of the concept. In Christianity, it helps to build relationships. It helps to mature us in the things of God. It helps us to be able to train others. It's this thing that keeps getting passed down. I'm just going to leave you with a, um, a concept in the world, and then we'll close. Many of you know, and if you didn't know, I'm a beekeeper. 
I've been keeping bees. It's pretty awesome, raising bees for five or six years now. And there's a, a disease. <laughs> there's my guru is sitting in there. In the, in the, whenever I have bee problems, I go to him. Uh, so he's the bee, the bee doctor. Anyway, there's this, uh, this disease that gets into the beehive. It's called American Fowl Brood. And what happens is it's a horrible thing in the spring or whatever when you take out the, the brood chamber where the babies are and you smell an awful smell and you see holes in the, in the wax and the, bee, the babies don't live. They, they rot. In the, and what happens is the bees, the queen lives for like three to five years, but the workers 30 to 40. Um, and without the babies continuing, right, the hive dies. The older bees die out and there's nobody left but the queen and then she dies because nobody's taking care of her. So it's called American Fowl Brood and you want to get rid of it fast because if you don't, your hive is, has limited time and then it's dead. You know, it's the same thing in the church. It's the same thing in the church. We need to disciple, we need to pass on, we need to, you know, not to hold all this knowledge in our heads and be haughty about it, but to pass it on. You know, to, to teach others, to train them, to say you're the next generation and when we die out, you continue this through generation X, Y, and Z until the Lord comes back. And if we don't do that, the church dies. And then we have a world where people are reproducing physically, but no one's being reproduced spiritually. Nobody's being born again. And the world starts to die in a spiritual sense. They're living, but they're living corpses in a spiritual sense. And that's a sad thing to, to see. This is why discipleship is so important. Who's going to preach the gospel in a dying world? Who's going to stand up? When, when myself and Pastor Vinny and Pastor Paul, and we, we start passing away, or we get too old and we can't go out, who's going to do it? Who's going to stand up and say, Lord, I'll do it? It's not for me, not for this church. It's for the Lord Jesus Christ to continue what he started, that concept. It's a dying world out there, and it's getting worse. You know, there's Muslims who have come to faith in ISIS-dominated areas. And they've been trained. And you know what they say? We want to go back. But they'll kill you. Especially as a Muslim convert to Christianity. They will, they will take great pleasure in torturing you. No, but I have to tell my people about Jesus. Isn't that amazing? They go right back into the lion's den. Because, the, because this, they're just so spirit-filled. And they don't care what happens to them. It's, it's just something to think about. So the question is, what did you and I get out of the Gospel of Mark? You know, we, instead of saying, well, we're in Mark still again. How many months has it been? You know, what do we get out of it? What did the Lord show us through this? Are we paying attention? Because God wants to use you in a mighty way. And it isn't about, you don't have to have an education level. You don't have to have money. You don't have to come from good stock. You don't have to have charisma. All you need to do is to avail yourself to, to him. And are you willing to do that? Is that something you desire? Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have Children's Church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, 
and may God bless you.